All right, Psalm 50. We're going to be in Psalm 50 tonight, just continuing right along. We looked at some psalms that were songs of Korah in the last few weeks. And tonight we're shifting gears. Tonight we're looking at a psalm of Asaph. There are, I believe, 12 psalms of Asaph through the psalms. We'll talk a little bit about that tonight. Psalm 50. And give everybody a second to turn to that. <coughs> Psalm 50, and Lord willing, we're going to make it through the whole thing tonight. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father God, we come to you tonight, and we thank you for these good words. And I pray, God, that you would just help us to understand what they say. I pray that you hide me behind the cross, that you would uh, help me to preach and teach in a way that's going to bring glory to you. And help the devil not get my mind sidetracked, help me not to have any worry or pride, God, but just to focus on your word. And I pray that you'll uh, speak through me tonight, God. Help our ears to be open. And I pray that you just would uh, help us to grow in your word. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Psalm 50 is a psalm of Asaph. Now, uh, this, is, this is very possible, the same Asaph that David mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, uh, verses 4 through 8. Now, if you want to turn there, you can, but we're going to read a few verses and kind of talk about Asaph. Uh, and this could be the same Asaph that we see uh, that some of these uh, psalms are attributed to. Now, in 1 Chronicles 16, uh, what we uh, see there is that David and the people of Israel are, are setting up camp essentially in Jerusalem. They're, they're moving into Jerusalem and they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem with them. And David appoints some people to, to lead in praise. And one of those people that he appoints to lead in praise, to praise the Lord as the ark is coming in, is Asaph. Now, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 4 through 8, it says this, David appointed some of the Levites to be ministers before the ark of the Lord, to celebrate the Lord God of Israel, and to give thanks and praise to him. Asaph was the chief, and Zechariah was second to him. Jeel, Shimarath, Jehiel, Matthiah, Eliab, Benaniah, Obad-Edom, and Jeel played the harps and lyres, while Asaph sounded the cymbals. And the priest, Benaniah, and Jehaziel blew the trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. On that day David decreed for the first time that thanks be given to the Lord by Asaph and his relatives. Give thanks to Yahweh. Call on his name, proclaim his deeds among the peoples. Now, it seems very probable that the Asaph that is leading worship here in these verses we looked at is the same Asaph that we see that it, these, these psalms are attributed to. Now, when it says a psalm of Asaph, it may be that Asaph himself uh, wrote this. It may be that he was involved in it. It may even be that some of his family, some of his relatives uh, wrote some of these psalms that we see that are attributed to him. As we see in this verse uh, that it talks about uh, thanks be given to the Lord by Asaph and his relatives. So it could be speaking of him personally or someone related to him. So when we read of Asaph here, that gives us an idea of who he is. We, we may know uh, somebody like David, for instance, who wrote most of these psalms. He's familiar to us. But a name like Asaph, uh, we may kind of pass over verses like that, and, and they don't stick in our mind. But that gives us an idea as to who wrote this psalm. Uh, now, let's look at verse 1. Yahweh, the God of God, speaks. 
He summons the earth from east to west. From Zion, the perfection of beauty appears in radiance. Now, Asaph here acknowledges that God is the God of gods. He is the Almighty, and he says that he summons the earth from east to west. Now, some of your translations may say he summons the sun as it rises from east to west or something like that. Uh, and that could be what it is. Uh, in the context, he could be speaking of summoning people, that is, all the people of the world, as far as the east is to the west. He's summoning them to come to uh, perhaps Jerusalem or wherever it may be. Uh, it would appear to be Jerusalem, though, I should say, uh, because it says Zion here. Uh, it says that, that God uh, summons from the east to the west. Now, it could be talking about the power of God and that he makes the sun rise and he makes the sun set every day. He's the creator. He is all-powerful. That could be uh, what Asaph is trying to say. Or he could simply be saying that, look, God is summoning all nations, all people to come to him, to come and worship him, to come and rejoice before him. So when it says summons the east to the west, it could just be anywhere the sun hits. That, that, that may be what he's saying if we go with the translation that say, and the sun rises, that Asaph is saying, wherever the sun rises and sets, wherever uh, people see the sun, they should come and gather and worship the Lord. Uh, I believe that's probably what he's saying because we see that mentioned again a few verses down. He says, from Zion, the perfection of beauty, God appears in radiance. Now, we just talked about Zion a few weeks ago, and Zion was a real literal place. Sometimes it referred to... Uh, Jerusalem in Scripture, sometimes it had a spiritual meaning. Uh, we see a spiritual Zion that's talked about, uh, but in this context, it seems as though it's probably literal, although it could be speaking of, of, of a spiritual Zion. Zion. Some may read this passage and say it's speaking of uh, something that's going to happen in the future, uh, but, but in the context, it's definitely Asaph here speaking of something that had occurred before the people then. Now, maybe kind of the, uh, the basic core of what he's talking about may be applicable to other followers of the Lord too. But in the context, this was a, a, a literal time and a literal event that took place. Uh, and he says that from Zion, the perfection of beauty, uh, God appears in radiance. Now, we see the first mention of Zion. You may remember a few weeks ago when we talked about it, or maybe not the first mention, but, but one that we'll look at tonight, I should say. First Chronicles chapter 11, verse 5 says, The inhabitants of Jebus, that is eventually what became known as Jerusalem, said to David, You will never get in here. Yet David did capture the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. So here we see this, this connection that ties it to Jebus which the Old Testament tells us was the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it used to be Jebus. It became Jerusalem. And David had uh, went in and overtook the Jebusites and set up camp there and brought the ark there. And as we saw in the verse in Chronicles, they were praising God uh, when they had set up camp in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, verse 3. Our God is coming. He will not be silent. Devouring fire precedes him, and a storm rages around him. On high, he summons heaven and earth in order to judge his people. Now, that's what I was just talking about. It talked about a little further down when it talks about he summons heaven and earth. And that may be the same idea that Asaph had in that first verse when it talks about that he was God from east to the west, that he's summoning people from all over. And why is he summoning people? Well, he's summoning people for judgment. Let's read on a little further. Verse 5. Gather my faithful ones to me, those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God is the judge. Selah. Now, 
Uh, here we have Asaph praising the Lord, which is just what David had appointed him to do back in that verse we looked at in Chronicles. And Asaph is praising the greatness of, of the Lord, acknowledging that he is the judge and that all will one day stand before the Lord. Uh, in this context, maybe a specific event was taking place, but it's true for all of us. We will all one day uh, stand before the Lord. Now we see some, uh, some interesting language in verse 3 that says, our God is coming, he will not be silent. Devouring fire precedes him, and a storm rages around him. Now, this language is not uncommon to us in Scripture, uh, uh, talking about God when he is going to bring judgment or when he is going to bring wrath. We see this type of language about God coming on the clouds. And we need to understand this symbolic language that we see because there may be times that symbolism is used uh, when it speaks about God or the Lord coming on the clouds. And it may be that God is physically coming on the clouds or will come on the clouds, or it may very well be a symbolic language. And we see this very language used symbolically in other places. In the Old Testament in particular, when God was coming on judgment uh, on a nation, he was coming in the clouds. We see that uh, very type of language used. Uh, we see that also in Psalm uh, 18, verses 6 through 12. If you want to uh, turn there and, and read along, you can. Psalm 18, verses 6 through 12 says, I called to the Lord in my distress, and I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Smoke arose from his nostrils, and consuming fire came from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. He parted the heavens and came down, a dark cloud beneath his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, dark storm clouds his canopy around him from the radiance of his presence. His clouds swept over, onward with hail and blazing Coals. Now, this is strong language, and in the context of this psalm that David wrote, David is praising the Lord because David called out to the Lord and God delivered him, but God punished those enemies who were against David. And we see all this same type of language here that we see tonight about uh, the Lord coming on the clouds and, and all those type of things. And that's the same type of language that we see a lot in the Old Testament. Now, is it possible that the Lord really did come on the clouds? Well, possible, but, but the language even that we see here uh, may not allow for that because uh, it says you may have caught in, in, the, in, the, in verse 10 that he soars on the wings of the wind. Now, the wind doesn't have wings. It also says that he rode on a cherub. Now, a cherub is an angelic type creature. Now, it's possible that God at some point in the Old Testament could have ridden on a cherub, an angelic type creature, uh, but it seems more likely that this is symbolic language, simply saying that God is coming in his wrath and is described with storm clouds and all of this, you know, real strong language about the hail, hail storms and all of those things. And so uh, that may very well be the same type of imagery that Asaph is using here when he uh, speaks in that way in verse 3 about a devouring fire precedes him and a storm rages around him. That may be Asaph's way of saying, look, God is coming in his wrath and it's going to be uh, pretty severe. And he's going to uh, bring judgment on those who don't don't listen to him who are disobedient to him uh, and who are not following him following him in the way that they should and we see that more as we continue on in verse 7 listen my people and i will speak i will testify against you israel i am god your god now 
He, God is speaking to the people here, and he's saying, look, listen to what I say. I'm going to testify against you. So Israel had done something wrong, or at least some of Israel had done something wrong. And it's not spelled out to us maybe as clearly as we would want it to be exactly what was taking place, but I think we can kind of figure out what was taking place based on this, this passage and on other passages that we see uh, in the Old Testament. He says in verse 8, I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or for your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. Now, obviously God had commanded his people to bring sacrifices and offerings to him, and they were doing that. And God says, I don't rebuke you for the sacrifices that you brought. I don't, I'm not rebuking you uh, for the offerings that you've given. But he is rebuking them for something, but this is not what it is. It's not being rebuked because of offerings and sacrifices, they were offering offerings and sacrifices. He goes on to say in verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your household or male goats from your pens. So he's saying, look, I don't reject your sacrifices or I'm not rejecting you because of your sacrifices, but I don't, I'm not going to accept your sacrifices. I'm not going to accept your animal offerings. Now, I believe what may be happening here is the same thing we see talked about in the very next psalm, in Psalm 51. Because in Psalm 51, David says in verses 16 and 17, You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken spirit and a humble heart. Now, I think what David said there may sum up what was happening in Psalm 50. That is, God doesn't care about sacrifices, nor does he need our sacrifices. That's not what draws us closer to him. What God really desired of his people then and of us now is for our heart to be focused on him. And that's what David says. Look, you don't desire sacrifices, God. You desire a broken and a humble heart. Now, it sounds as though that may be exactly what Asaph is addressing here. God said, look, I'm not rejecting you because of your sacrifices. You were offering sacrifices, but I don't want any more of your sacrifices. What God really wanted from his people and what he wants from us is for us to have a heart. Now, we don't offer animal sacrifices, hopefully, to the Lord. None of us are doing that. But there may be other things that we do that we think we are earning favor with God. Maybe it's coming to church on Sunday. Well, I come to church every Sunday or two Sundays a month or one Sunday a month or whatever you have deemed to be acceptable. And you think, if I've done this, then that's good. That's all God requires of me. I put X amount of dollars in the offering plate or I've done one good deed this week or whatever it is. We, we may have these checklists in our mind that we think, all right, when I've met this goal that I have set, I'm where God wants me to be. But our heart may not even be on God, even in doing good things that we may sometimes do. Uh, the people of Israel were doing good things by sacrificing to God. That's what he called them to do. But their heart was not in it. Now, this is a good lesson for us to check ourselves to say, okay, one, am I doing good things? Hopefully we are. We're doing righteous things and godly things. And two, if I am, is my heart in it? Now, maybe sometimes we do it and our heart's not in it. And if it's not, then we need to say, okay, God, help me to help my heart to change. Change my heart, oh God. Open up my eyes. I want to feel your glory moving in my life. I remember that. That's a line from a song we sang in Bible school 10 years ago. But I remember that line, and it stands out to me, and that line comes to my mind quite often. And that might be a good prayer for us to say, change my heart, oh God. 
so that our heart is not just on the outward things that make us feel better, but that our heart is on God and all that we do. He goes on to say in uh, verse 10, For every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice a thank offering to God and pay your vows to the Most High. Now, this kind of gives us maybe a little more clue as to what the Lord is, is, is calling them for. He says, look, I'm not upset at you because of your, your offerings, but I don't want your offerings. I don't need your offerings. God says, I am over everything. I own the cattle of a thousand hills. Now, that's a good verse for us to consider because we see the, we see the word thousand a lot in Scripture. And almost always when we see the word thousand, it's probably not meant to be taken literally uh, because does that uh, limiting God to saying, well, he owns the cattle of a thousand hills, but who owns the cattle of the rest of them? Well, he's just using this, this strong language and this large number to make a point here. Again, it's symbolic language. God says, I own everything. I own every animal, every bird of the sky. It's all mine. I don't need your food to eat. Now, he speaks in this, in this interesting language in verse 12 because he says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Now, this is interesting. Does God eat? Well, of course God doesn't eat. He's a spiritual being, but sometimes there are, there are human traits that are attributed to God to help make a point, to help us understand things in a way that we can understand it. Now, there's a big word for that. It's called anthropomorphisms. Uh, and when we see God, these things attributed to God, like God was hungry, or God sees, or God's hand, or whatever it may be, well, God doesn't have physical eyes, he doesn't have physical hands, uh, and God doesn't get hungry. We also see that God rests. Well, God doesn't get tired, he doesn't sleep or slumber. God doesn't rest, but we see these human traits that are attributed to God because we can understand what God is saying a little better. And so we see these type of things really all throughout Scripture. Uh, we even saw them in the passage from uh, Psalm chapter 18 that we looked at a, a while ago when we were talking about the clouds and all that crazy language. Uh, some of that would kind of fall into that same kind of category. So when we see uh, these things like this, that God is not hungry, and he says, I do not eat the flesh of bull or drink the blood of goats, well, that's true. God does not do those things. And God uh, wasn't so much concerned with people just going through the motions of sacrificing those animals. What God really desired from the people was their heart. What he really desired from them in verse 14 was sacrifice a thank off thanks offering to God and pay your vows to the Most High. What God really wanted them was when they offered things to them, to him, was for them to be praising him, for them to be glorifying him, for them to be acknowledging him and loving him and what they were doing. Not just doing it, but actually being thankful for the God he was and how great he was. Now, uh, Hosea chapter 6 verse 6 says something very similar to what we saw in that Psalm 51 passage. And he says in that, "...for I desire loyalty and not sacrifice." the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. Now, that, I believe, explains what, what, what Asaph was talking about and what the Lord was talking about in this psalm. He didn't want their burnt offering. He wa didn't want their sacrifice. He wanted them to be loyal to him. He wanted them to be humble to him. 
And that's why he's saying, look, I don't need your sacrifice. I don't want your sacrifice. I see you're doing it, and that's all well and good. But what I really want is you. I really want you to praise me and to be thankful to me and to glorify me for being the great God uh, that he had been to his people. In verse 15, call on me in a day of trouble. I will secure you, and you will honor me. Now, this is a word that the Lord is giving to those uh, who may be involved in this sinful behavior, or even to those who are righteous, that we need to remember this truth. This is a, this is a good verse, maybe for us to, to mark and keep in our mind. Call on me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you. Now, that's a good verse for us because guess what? Every one of us has a day of trouble. For some of us, it might be every day. For some of us, we we may have more days of trouble than we do days of not trouble. It may be trouble with our schoolwork. It may be trouble with our job. It may be trouble at church. It may be trouble with our health. It may be trouble with a family member. It may be trouble with a million different things. There are things that come in our life, and they are troublesome to us. Now, some of them may be our own sinfulness that's causing us trouble. Some of them may just be situations of life. So what do we do in those times of trouble? Well, sometimes we may, we may groan and we may go around saying, oh, woe is me, oh, it's over, everything's going downhill, things will never get better and all these things. And, and sometimes we are quick to say those kind of things and give up. But what we should be quick to do is what Asaph or what the Lord tells us here in verse 15, call on me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you. Now, that's good stuff right there. Now, God rescues us in a variety of different ways. He doesn't always uh, make our troubles go away. It would be great if he did. But sometimes the way he rescues us is by teaching us greater faith in our struggles, by teaching us patience in our struggles, by giving us strength in our struggles. And in that way, God rescues us not only from the struggle we're in, but also maybe from future struggles that are going to come in preparing us for things that we may encounter. So what do we do when we are in a time of trouble? We call out to the Lord, and he will rescue us. And what are we to do? And you will honor me. And that was the problem with these people uh, that, we, that we're looking at tonight, and the same problem that uh, David was addressing in the next psalm and Hosea was talking about in Hosea 6.6. 6. Uh, there are some people who the Lord has blessed, and they don't honor the Lord. They don't acknowledge the Lord. They don't praise the Lord. Now, we might not like to admit it, but we may be guilty of that sometimes too. And all the blessings and all the good things that God does for us, perhaps we are sometimes guilty of not giving the Lord the honor and the praise that he deserves. God says, call out to me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. Now, maybe you need to think back at your life and think of things that are going on now or in the past or maybe remember this in the future And when you call out to God and you see that God has been with you and all that you've been doing, and maybe you hadn't even realized he's been with you, but maybe when you stop and and, and look at it for a second, you say, boy, God has been good to me, better than I deserve, better than I realized, then maybe we need to honor the Lord and give the Lord a little praise that maybe we haven't been given him. Verse 16. But God says to the wicked, what right do you have to recite my statutes and to take my covenant on your lips? You hate instruction and turn your back on my words. When you see a thief, you make friends with him and you associate with adulterers. You unleash your mouth for evil and harness your tongue for deceit. 
you sit maligning your brother, slandering your mother's tongue. Now, these people who are uh, reciting these statutes to the Lord uh, are obviously not really following the Lord because he goes on to list all of these evil things that, 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 that they're doing. They are honoring him with their lips, but their heart is far from him. Uh, that's a passage from Isaiah, a passage that Jesus also quotes when he's dealing with a similar situation. Now, we see that in uh, Matthew chapter 15, I believe, in Mark chapter 10, maybe, uh, where Jesus is encountering some people, and they're really worried because the disciples aren't washing the, washing the dishes they're uses, using. And, and, and they're worried that the disciples are unclean, and Jesus addresses them. And he says, look, you're worried about washing the outside of the cup, but you're not worried about what's on the inside. Now, Jesus wasn't concerned about dishwashing. He was concerned about the heart, and he quotes that verse from Isaiah. Uh, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And I think that's the same thing that we see going on here in Psalm 50. God's saying, look, you say the right things. Uh, you even go through the motions, but, but here's what you're doing. Your actions don't line up with what you're saying. You're saying you're mine, but you're not living like you're mine. Now, we want to make sure that we're not falling into that same, uh, same trap, into that same category that we are not those who are evil, but that we are those who recognize our sinfulness and we call out to the Lord so that he can rescue us out of that sinfulness and we can honor him for that. In verse 21, You have done these things and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you, but I will rebuke you and lay out the case before you. Understand this, you who forget God, or I will tear you apart and there will be no one to rescue you. Now, uh, this verse reminds me a lot of, uh, of a verse from 2 Peter in chapter 3, verses 9 and 12. God says, look, you've done all these evil things, and God had kept silent for a while. God had not punished these things. And he said, and you thought I was just like you. Uh, and I think maybe what the Lord is trying to say there is, and you, you thought I approved of these things because I hadn't done anything. Because I've kept silent in your sin, you think that I've approved of these things. You think you're doing right by me. But God says, but wait a minute, but I will rebuke you and lay out the case before you. Now, Peter says a similar thing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. He says, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now, I think that that's probably what God was doing here when he was keeping silent, hoping these people would turn from these evil ways and repent. And the Lord was keeping silent, but it was far uh, to give them a chance so that they would not perish, but repent. In verse 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day the heavens will pass with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works on it will be disclosed, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. It is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness, as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming day of the Lord. The heavens will be on fire and be dissolved because of it, and the elements will, welt, will melt in the heat. Now, Peter's saying there, look... Uh, God is being patient. He's not punishing all of the evil. He's not putting an end to all the things that we see in our world because God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And we say, why don't God do something when we see all these wars and starvation and these horrible things we see? Well, 
God is patient. God is wanting more souls to be saved. He's wanting more people to repent. He's wanting more people to turn to Jesus Christ. And in his delay, it's not that he's forgotten about us. It's not that he's okaying this evil. It's not that he's not ever going to do anything about it. But he's waiting until all that will come to him will come to him. And then what does Peter say after that? It's going to get bad. The day of the Lord's going to come and there's going to be uh, bad times that are going to come when that day comes. And that's exactly what the Lord is saying to these people in Psalm 50. But I will rebuke you and lay out the case before you. So he says, in light of this knowledge, God says, understand this, you who forget God, or I will tear you apart and there will be no one to rescue you. They are not calling out to the Lord. They are not remembering the Lord. And therefore, they are about to be in big trouble. The language is, I will tear you apart. Now, this is going to be serious. Now, what did God say for those who will call out to him? If you will call out to me, I will rescue you. Call out to me in a day of trouble, I will rescue you. But these people he's addressing, he says, but you're living in sin. You have forgotten about me. Therefore, listen up. Understand what I'm saying or there will be no one to rescue you. Because who can rescue us other than the Lord? Nobody. There is no rescuer other than the Lord. Either we acknowledge God in our sinfulness and call out to him and are rescued by him through Jesus Christ and the blood shed on the cross, or we reject God and we suffer the punishment mentioned in Second Peter and mentioned here in Psalm 50. So understand this, he said. These words are good for us too. Understand what God is saying. There is no rescue to come if we don't seek him and call out to him and, and seek Jesus Christ and trust in him for our rescue. Verse 23. Whoever sacrifices a thank offering honors me, and, off, and whoever orders his conduct, I will show him the salvation of God. There we see that same language there. Again, it's not about the offering. It's about the heart that comes behind it. If you are offering a thank offering, then that is showing that you are thanking the Lord for what he has done, that you are showing that you are praising him, that you are glorifying him. That's what God desired of his people. That's what he desired in Hosea. And when he told him, look, I want your loyalty, not your sacrifices. And that's what David realized he wanted in the psalm we'll look at next week, Lord willing. When he says, look, you don't want burnt offerings. You want a heart that is humble before you. Now, this is a good psalm. There's a lot of stuff for us to consider in this psalm tonight. And maybe we need to reflect on our own life and say, okay, one, am I thanking God for what he's doing in my life? Or am I just going through the motions? Two, is there sin in my life that I need to repent of? And three, if there are things in my life that are weighing me down, who's going to rescue me out of those things? Well, it's only going to be to the Lord. It's only going to, excuse me, to be the Lord who is going to rescue us out of those things. But there's one key thing that you have to do. Call out to the Lord on your day of trouble, and He will rescue you. And when you've experienced God's deliverance in your life, praise Him for it. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you tonight, and I thank you for these good words. I pray that you would help us to remember them and to live by them and grow in them, dear Lord. I pray that you would just tuck these things in our heart. Let the Holy Spirit use them at the right time. And I pray that if there are things in our life that shouldn't be there, that we would repent of them, that we would seek you, that we would turn to you, dear Lord, that we would know even in the midst of our, of our hardest struggles that we can call out to you and you will rescue us and help us not to ever forget that truth and not to forget the, the most amazing truth in all of Scripture, that we are rescued not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. 
And so, God, I pray that if there's one that is here tonight or listening to this online, if they've never trusted Jesus, God, I pray that today they would repent of their sin, that they would trust Jesus, and that they would start living for Him. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for today's service. To learn more about Jesus, call or text Pastor Shan at 601-657-0180 or email him at shanvn at me.com. You can also visit us at www.enterprisebaptist.church or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Liberty. We hope that you have been blessed by today's service.